0: Yeah, You're welcome. I'm Matt Green. I'm a Grateful Alcoholic. <laughs> I'd like to thank you all for having me here. And, uh, you know, Greg called me the first time and uh, asked me if I'd come do this. And, and then, uh, you know, Brian, uh, you know, Brian's been absolutely awesome. He did. You know, sometimes I call you and ask you if you'll come and you say okay. and. Uh, well, we'll be in touch, and then, you know, a couple of days before the conference, do you have your plane ticket now? <laughs> and, uh, Brian has been really good, and uh, he does love to talk, though, I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, <laughs> it's absolutely been awesome. No, I, I don't think we ever had a phone call in less than 10 minutes, and, and sometimes, I know we talked over 30 minutes, uh, two or three times. and getting to hear about you guys and uh, your alcoholics Anonymous and your commitment to alcoholics Anonymous, here uh, impressed me what you guys do and, and uh, hearing about his family and, and uh, his wife doesn't want anybody to know but she's two months pregnant again. And, uh, so. <laughs> Brian kind of let that slip and, and, you know, so what you hear here, what you see here, let it stay here, so. uh. (laughs) Uh, And, you know what, when that thunder first started, did you notice it didn't do it all the way through the countdown until we got to the newcomers? That was (laughs) us. And welcome, man, one day, you know, I mean, you know what. no matter what I say up here, probably the best thing I can tell you with one day is you can't get a better sobriety date than the one you have. I tried to get a better sobriety date for a long time, and it, it got way worse. Uh, Joe's been an absolute uh, awesome uh, host. The first day I got here, he drove me all around you guys' town. And uh, most of you probably don't know, but I'm blind, and... Uh, But so he, it was really cool because a lot of times they'll pick me up and they'll drive me around their towns and they don't say nothing, we just drive. You know, it's like three hours later they're dropping me off at the hotel and I said, man, that was awesome, you know. (laughs) And then they're trying to show me the pictures of their kids as I'm getting out of the car. and uh... (laughs) Joe... uh, Joe, he uh, told me everything that we went by and, and, and so it made it like, you know, it was, it was real and stuff and it was unbelievable how, you know, you see the race on TV that in Indianapolis 500, but you drive around it's like, damn, that sucker's huge. And I was trying to tell all my guys I sponsor, you know, a bunch of them called since I've been here about how big it was and he goes, yeah, like our fairground. I go, shit. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, my sobriety date is January 26th, 1987. Uh, for you that are new so you don't miss the rest of meeting, I'm 22 years sober. Uh, I uh, I don't know if you're like, you know, because I mean I do that because when I was new they throw out, you know. These dates, and then they'd say they got sober at this time, so you know, I got to figure out how old they are. The next thing I know, we're saying the Lord's Prayer, and I miss the whole rest of the damn meeting, you know. <laughs> so, you don't have to add that up. I'm 56 years old. Uh, I know I don't look that old. I've had a lot of plastic surgery. <laughs> you know, they spent over a million dollars on me, and, and uh, I mean over 100 million, and uh, no parts are bionic or nothing. <laughs> Um, I have three children, uh, four grandchildren. I've uh, been married and divorced eight times. Uh, (coughs) that course, it's not my fault. I keep trying, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I try. I was married to my first four women without ever getting a divorce, you know. Yeah, uh, they tended to bicker a little bit, but you know. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking, you know, that that God, you know, you guys have you had you've had awesome speakers, and 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 uh, you know, I I was uh, telling Stevie because he was talking about just being an average drunk, you know, and uh, you know, we talked about that for a while. That you know that because a lot of people when they hear me, they say, man, I must not be alcoholic. You know, I definitely wasn't nowhere that stupid, you know. And uh, it's not a requirement that you be that stupid like me and uh, go out. Because, I mean, I'll guarantee you, if it, you, know, it, you know, one thing I know for a fact that if God's not, you know, I found a loving, caring, forgiving God here. And if he's not done with you, you're not going to die. I mean, I'm living proof of it. I mean, I'm missing so many body parts. But I can't die, you know. God had something for me to do. And I mean, I've had everything transplanted, and, you know, hardly nothing's real on me anymore. And I got tons of metal in me. And, uh, and that's what got me to work. this says I was tired of missing body parts, you know. Um, but I, yeah, and yeah, I want to talk about Shelley, too. You guys. You know, I think must be nice for me to be up here and be the Saturday night big shot speaker, right? You guys don't have no big shot speakers in Indianapolis. Um, I had the privilege of coming over. When Joe dropped me off at the hotel Thursday night, he said, I'll be back to get you at 8.30 in the morning. I think it was 8.30, something like that. And Okay, you know, I don't know what's going on. So he picks me up and we come over here and they put me to work. So if you've been bitching about how the chairs were lined up, I set most of those up. <laughs> and uh, check Shelly out though man I mean there I think there was three of us over by this door over here you know we I mean we'd already been there a couple hours just banging ass putting tables and chairs up and and most of it was already done I think we were up to the banner then and we're standing over the door just talking for a couple minutes and she's way over here and she hollers I didn't tell you guys to take a break And she goes, and that includes you too, Matt. <laughs> and I'm going, damn, you guys are tough. Lack of respect in Indianapolis, the man. <laughs> and then we get all done here. I think, well, that's it. We're going to go. She said, no, Joe take me over to where the dinner was last time. We set up over there too. <laughs> After we left where the dinner was, where Bill did an awesome job last night, I, I, I asked Joe, hey, where are we going now? He goes, why don't we drop you off at the hotel for a couple hours now? That's great. Uh, But it's been an absolute blast here and it's been awesome talking to you guys. Uh, If you are new, I I pray to God that you don't judge your alcoholism by mine because you'll probably die. And I'll guarantee you'll put yourself through tons and tons of insanity. You know, I waited a long time like a lot of people before I started drinking. It was a summer before the fourth grade. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't uh, you know, our book talks about most of us cross over that invisible line that, you know, if we, if there was any given time, we might have been able to quit and, and stop the illness from progressing. In my case, wasn't that true, true like that. I, I started on this side. I started with hot Thunderbird wine. I don't even know if you guys have that crap out here. I'll guarantee it's never seen a grape ever in its life. <laughs> yeah. Back then, um, I think it sold for like 11 cents a quart or something like that. didn't it? you know, I, I I don't even think it was really legal. You know, we got this toxic waste site. In California, we got everything, you know. Everybody, oh, well, you're from California? I go, yeah, you know, you know, that's where all the, land of the fruits and nuts live out there. But we got this toxic west site out in Kelman Hills and I think that's probably where they got that Thunderbird and just added a little bit of red coloring to it and sold it, you know, and and uh, but you know, when you're in the when you're in the fourth grade, you know, you can't be real picky about what you get to drink, you know, and Especially if you're going to drink on a daily, and you know what, nobody told me that you need to guzzle, and I don't know, that just came naturally for me. I would drink every day after school that first three or four days, you know, I would just get through school and, and I'd come home and guzzle wine, that Thunderbird wine, that hot Thunderbird wine, and, and it made the madness inside me go away, you know, what? I mean, it was still there, but you know, it was okay, you know. I was shy, I was quiet, my parents had gotten divorced, I felt abandoned, you know, all that crap that we don't, you know, other people go through what we feel, but they just accept it and move on, you know, we got to drag that shit up for the end of time, you know, complaining, you know, about what our parents did to us and, you know, as they're putting us in the grave, you know, we're still bitching about what they did to us at three years old, you know, still trying to get in touch with that inner child crap, you know, and... uh i uh, I remember coming home from school you know i 'd cry coming home from school every day those kids would pick on me, and I grew up in this little tiny town and and they rode horses and and you know and you know I love horses, but I 'm a big city guy, I need action going on, even as a kid and I hated living in this little tiny town, you know I mean there wasn't nothing to do I mean the biggest fun was to go out and steal watermelons or something you know and and that just didn't interest me you know uh. Riding motorcycles interested me in fighting and getting in trouble and well, I didn't have no problem getting in trouble but uh, I just hated growing up in this little tiny town and, and I was shy and I, I couldn't fight and I you know I had uh, real bleach blonde hair and, and freckles everywhere and the kids would ask me like did I run into the screen door and get all those freckles and just god it just I hated it. <coughs> But after uh, three or four days of drinking after school, I thought, you know what, this works so good, I wonder what it would do before school. <laughs> and so I drank that hot tender bird wine before I went to school, and uh, first four kids that picked on me, I whipped all their asses. And I instantly became a tough guy at school. And and man, you know, I, that started this other madness that, that you know, I, I strive to be on top of the game all the time. And, and you know, to try to hide how you're feeling so nobody will find out that you're really afraid inside. Fear ruled my life. But with enough alcohol in those beginning days, I could make that madness go down, and it didn't matter. And I tell you, you know, the book says we drink essentially for the effect produced by alcohol. And I'll tell you, if you were drinking for the taste of it, you're probably in the wrong room, because that taste, especially Thunderbird wine. I think Steve talked about that strawberry hill, didn't you? I think that's, I hate that. That I, I don't like sweet stuff. When I was drinking in that Strawberry Hill and I was at Boone Farm and Annie Green Springs or Ripple and that stuff was way too sweet for me. That was for the sissy drinkers. Those tough guys had to drink straight booze like tequila and whiskey, and, and it tasted way nastier. But you were more macho drinking straight out of the fifth like that. Especially if you go down to me- Mexico and get that mezcal with a worm in the bottom of it, and, I mean that was a big deal to drink all that mezcal and get to the worm. I you never remembered eating the worm, but uh, it worked good though. You know, I loved everything about drinking. It made me, um, it made me be who I I was afraid to be. You know, I. Uh, You know, I've been talking to so many people, and, you know, I, I forget who I was telling. Um, I think it was Brian. I, he goes, uh, don't say it anymore. He goes, I, I, I want to hear the story. And tonight, it's like, man, you'd have to listen to all my frigging tapes to get all this. When I drink, I, you know, on a daily basis, I come up with some really stupid ideas to do. And I mean, I, I can go on the rest of the night. Telling you all the stupid places and all the institutions I got locked up in and, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I when, when I was new I heard someone say they were allergic to alcohol and when they drank they broke out in spots and I thought, that sounded right, you know, when I drank I, I broke out in jails and institutions all over the country, you know, like Nevada and Mexico and I remember when I went to jail, went, the first time I went to Y was there two days before I went to jail. And I thought at least I'm going to jail in a higher class neighborhood, you know. I mean the rubber room's still the same, but um, I don't know what it is when, it, when you know, I, I, I don't like drinking at home. Uh, someone talked about uh, those uh, 20, 30 questions, whatever it is, one was, them do, do you ever drink alone? and the only time I ever drank alone if I was on the way to the bar nobody was with me you see because a wife can't go you know I mean what if you meet number six or number seven or whatever you, know? you can't be taking a wife along and slowing that process down you know I mean you know I would just I, I, you know somehow I'd get married and, and uh, you know I mean I don't remember most of them they must have took advantage of me and, and being drunk in the bar and say, let's go get married, and I must say okay, And you know, because I come to, and they show me a wedding certificate. I mean, i have been married in the Har- Reno, Hearted Chapel five times. I should have got a group discount there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, I moved away from home when I, the night before I turned 13, and I'm drinking on a daily basis, and, and the alcohol isn't working anymore, really. I couldn't take the beatings no more from my mom's drunken boyfriends. And, uh, you know, they would just beat me till I was uh, out cold and pulling my own blood. And, and I couldn't take it anymore. I'd been around with the Hells Angels for a couple of years. And, and I loved those guys back in the early 60s, man. I mean, we could ride Harley davidsons and we could go to the bar and we could roll the bars. And the cops wouldn't screw with us back then. And we could do whatever we wanted. And, and that was a safe place for a guy like me. And I moved into the president of the Fresno chapter of the Hell's Angels that night. And I wanted to be a part of that deal so desperately, you know. And uh, I know this is alcoholics anonymous, but they held out their hands and said, take these pills. I was really, really drunk, and I desperately wanted to belong. And you say, you don't say, you know, how many do I take or what are they or what, you just take all of them. And then you can't get up in the morning. They hold out some white powder, and they say, take this. You'll get out of bed. And you take that and I don't know how you guys drink and do that stuff but I always overshoot the mark you know I'm at work and I'm pulling transmissions out at 13 years old and they rebuild them I put them back in and my boss he drinks and gets loaded you know I don't know anybody that doesn't at this time of my life and I'm starting to go in and out of the juvenile hall systems for the crimes I'm committing and uh you know, my boss tells me, man, you, you must have took too much of that white stuff. You're not getting work done. All you're doing spinning round and round on that creeper. He goes, you better drink something and slow down. And I always overshoot the mark because the next thing I know, he's kicking the creeper and saying, you must have drank too much. All you're doing is sleeping now. He goes, you better take some more of that white stuff. And, and that started this madness in my life that, that took me in unbelievable places. You know, whether... Trying to take whatever it took to be able to go to work and and you know you can't never go to sleep because you might miss something and and uh, my saliva glands don't work with the shit anymore. They've operated um, on know a dozen times. But uh um forgot where I was at. <laughs> I got two pulling transmissions out huh? Uh, I don't know. Anyways, uh, you know, so I started going in and all these institutions, and and I ended up making it in the CYA, and, and you, know, I, you know, it's like I, you know, I hated getting locked up in those kind of places. But you know, around with Hell's Angels, it's like it made you a tougher guy. But you know, it's really uncool going to uh, juvenile hall and CYA and youth centers and stuff when when you're Hell's Angel. That's just really uncool and because they call your parents even though you don't live at home and, you know, your parents don't want to have nothing to do with you, you haven't talked to them in years. And, and uh, you, you know, how do you explain that to the judge why your parents don't show up, you know? Check at this bar, you might find them. Uh, but so my dream was to turn 18 so I could go to jail like tough guys do. And, and uh, you know, and I don't know where it came from. I've written about it a lot. My dream was to turn 21 and die on my 21st birthday. And of course, it has to be glorious, you know. Our book talks about we're grandiose, and and that was me to the max, man. You know, it's like my whole life, as far back as I can remember, even as a little kid, I I never liked, I never enjoyed life. I always wanted to be out of this world. It was too tough, it was too hard. I didn't understand, and uh, I just wanted out always. But I thought it would be really neat on my 21st birthday to be on my Harley and robbing this bank, and I come out, and and the cops are out there, and the news helicopters are flying around, and I have a shootout with the cops, and I get shot a couple times. you got to get shot a couple times, you know. You get on that Harley-Davidson, you make it out to the freeway, and now you're going through county after county, and now they got the national news on it. And several hours later, man, and they're shooting you a couple more times every county you go through. And several hours later on national news, you and that Harley-Davidson go end over end and it explodes. And, God, you go out in a blaze of glory. It's just it's just going to be awesome, you know. And so, you know, I keep looking at these places I'm getting locked up having these psychiatric wards for the crimes I'm committing. And, and I'm thinking, man, you know, I, I need to make it till I'm 21. I'm never going to make it. You know, because I... I turned 18, I immediately went to jail for uh, armed robbery and shooting a cop. And sometimes when cops are in the audience, they get pissed off and split when I get to this part of it. But it's not like I like shooting cops. What, you know, whatever got in the way of me and drinking was going to go always. And in my lifestyle, cops were always in my way. So a couple times, cops got shot. But there was times I, uh, there was times I pulled a, a gun on cops, and and I went not pull the trigger. I'd wait till they shot me, and then I'd come to out of surgeries. And I'd still be alive, and it's like, dang, what I got to do to die here? <coughs> you know, like I say I ended up getting married to well, that first girl I married. You know, I I got off those first charges because the cops screwed up, and I'm thinking, man, I you know I got a long ways to go till I'm 21, and you know, back then, uh, someone talked about it, maybe it was Bill, Last someone did, about back then, if, if you got someone pregnant, you did the right thing and married them, and that's not a real safe place for a tough guy, but, but if that's what I got to do to slow this down a little bit, I'll do it. And, and this girl would, you know, so I get out of jail and I'm engaged to seven girls, I check with all of them, and because and uh, more is better, anything more is better. And one out of the seven said she was pregnant. And I said, okay, we'll do the right thing. We went up to Reno and we had a, we had an awesome Hell's Angel wedding. We got her drunk and loaded and she passed out. And so we went out for three days and then came back and picked her up at the motel. And she was a little pissed, but uh, I took her back and dropped her off at home and in, a, in a short period of time, you know, and you know what, that girl, you know, it seems like people like to take advantage of drunks. I don't know why. And because that girl either lied or I need to go in the World against Book of Records because that kid didn't pop out for nine months, you know, and, uh, I mean, 18 months. And that kind of pissed me off, you know. And, uh, we, you know, and that's how I do married, you know. I mean, we're together for a couple months after we get married, maybe. And, uh, and then, you know, once in a while, we'll spend the night together, and that's how that kid came about. And by then I was married to a couple other girls. And and you just marry them and you bring them back to Fresno and you just rent another place. And this one lives here and that one lives there. And and you make a lot of money. I, and, you know, I had a contractor's license I got as soon as I was 18 and, and doing all the other crimes we do and stuff. You know, I was making tons of money. I couldn't spend as fast as I made it. And, and so it's no big deal to just start up households all over town and... And then I, I remember, man, you know, I, I'm in Reno again, and, and I got this fourth wife, you know, and it's like, dang. And I'm building this shopping center in Modesto, and it's like, man, I don't have time to go rent another house for another wife and stuff, and, and you know, I need to get back up to that shopping center. I've been gone for a week, and uh, so I thought, dang it, I'll just take her home to my third wife. So I took her home to my third wife, and, and they weren't getting along real good. And. and <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I said, you know what, uh, you guys are going to have to work this out. I can't take this bickering anymore. I, uh, <laughs> I go out to Modesto and check on my guys up there and see how they're doing. I haven't been up there in a while and I'll be back in 30 days. You guys work this out or whatever you got to do. And, and I came back in 30 days and the third wife was gone and the fourth wife was there. And, and you know what, I didn't like that fourth wife. And, uh, <laughs> but she went and left. Uh, so I paid my guys. This was like in 1971, somewhere in there, 71, 72. You know, 50 bucks a day was a lot of money for them guys. I paid three of my guys 50 bucks a piece, a tire and the recliner, and put the recliner on the flatbed and and drop her off on a street corner somewhere, and uh, they they did, and and I told them to go by and pick my girlfriend up, and her two kids, and move her in, and they did that, and. You know, so I was having a few marital problems and they're suing me and crap and, and uh, you know, and I, and I don't go to court. I can't deal with that crap, you know. It's like you soak me for thousands and thousands of dollars. That's okay, I, you know, I can't do that. I mean, I go to court enough as it is. I'm paying off judges and district attorneys. And, you know, I'm keeping, uh, even back from 1970 on, I paid this attorney two grand a month just on retainer, and then if I use him, which was at least um, sometimes every day, uh, you know, you shoot a cop and, and you go out of your house and, and get on the public street and they just arrest you, you know. So sometimes you go to jail three times a day, uh, seven days a week for three times a day. It gets old, you know. It's After a while, you tell them, you know, this game isn't fun anymore, you know. Uh, so you keep a. Uh, you keep a attorney on retainer all the time, so his job is to immediately get you out of jail, no matter where in the country you live. And and he, I mean, where I was went to jail, and he loved that, you know, because like when I'd go to jail in Hawaii or Mexico or something like that, he he'd fly his wife out and he'd stay for a couple of weeks at my expense, you know, and and uh, that pissed me off. But what are you going to do? You know, you got you got to get out of jail, right? Uh, I. Uh, you know, you guys are probably tired from sitting here all day. And Brian said, you know, try to cut her off about 10 o'clock. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <coughs> um. so it's like, you know, this madness is getting so crazy, and I'm doing all this other stuff, and, you know, I just can't manage it anymore. I can't stay out of jail anymore, you know, and, And you guys did geographics, I never did. I I moved to like Mexico and and Reno, Nevada and places like that. It's like that's looking after your own butt, you know. When you got an indictment for you in the state you live in, you just moved to another state. You know, we didn't have computers back then. And and you could kind of hide out. And uh, you know, it always surprised me. I mean, I'd go to a different state or a different country and I'd be there only a couple of days, I'm in jail already again. It's like, how'd they find out I got here so fast? You know, it never dawned on me until I was sober this time for quite a while that I never did anything different. And I, I, went, I drank, and I, and I fought, and I raised Cain, and, and you know, and I got locked up a lot. And I went to a lot of psychiatric units for the crimes I'm committing, and, and the violence, and. Now, I don't know why they wasted so much money on me on these psychiatric units because it always came out the same diagnosis that I was uh, incapable of adapting to the society way of life and homicidal, And they just kept sending me back for our evaluations over and over and over again. And it just, you know, and I tell them, man, I go, you know what, call this hospital. That's where I was strapped down last. Save you guys some time and we could just get on with this game and they got to where they were sending me to uh, the uh, state uh, institutions for the criminally insane. Now, those places were really, really cool. They, they, they out you out so bad, you don't even know if you're on planet Earth. And they said they were evaluating us. I don't know how that could be. No, observation, that's what it was, observation. I mean, because, you, you know, and we could smoke in the facilities back then. We couldn't have lighters or matches, but, you know, what we did all day, you know, it was called the Tascadero State Hospital, and and uh, right after they built it, I went to not, not too much after they built it. When you went from your bed to the day room, and, and you worked on getting a cigarette in your mouth, right, you know, and, Sometimes during the day, you get that baby plopped in your lips, and, and then you kind of shuffle towards that back wall where they had this round thing like a cigarette lighter in your car, and it was glowing red all the time, indentured in the wall. And then you'd aim for that hole, right, with that cigarette. And we, <laughs> See how much fun you guys didn't do? <laughs> and, and then when you thought you were lined up, you just fell forward. If you miss a hole, you were screwed. You had to go start all over again. <coughs> if he made it in the hole, he went and sat back down at the day table, and, and they had us, they kept us so thordering down so we couldn't fight or raise cane or anything, but we were there for observation, and, and there wasn't nothing really to observe. Observe, you know, it's like, so you'd sit there back at the day table looking at that cigarette like this. You couldn't suck on it or nothing. You just let it burn, and the ashes would fall down, and get to the butt, and the cherry would fall down, and. When it quit burning, <laughs> you just get up and go to bed. It took all day just to do that. <laughs> and then, so I went through that observation there four and a half months later. Uh, they came up with the same diagnosis. And, and it's like, they waste a lot of money. You know, and over the next years, I just kept doing the same thing over and over and over and over, going in and out of institutions, going to alcoholics, and I was, check this out. Someone else was talking about that that hard decision to go to A2, I, I don't remember. But when I was 23 years old, I, I went before the judge and I'd already been to the penitentiary. And, uh, you know, I, I went to penitentiary because I found a bannered armored truck. And uh, and I know it was abandoned because it was running and nobody was in it. <laughs> and I, I, I was AWOL from the service and I needed some wheels to get home. And, uh, you know, they, they put me in a penitentiary for that crap, and they just didn't understand, but, you know, when I'm 23 years old, you know, so I'm before the judge, and he goes, you know what, I'm going to send you back to penitentiary for two years, where you have to go to A five days a week for a year, and I couldn't make my mind up, and so he, he gave me five more days in jail to make my mind up, like, that was a tough decision, you know. I didn't make my mind up till that fifth day before I went to the judge. I said, I'll try that AA crap. And, you know, my first meeting, they I, you know, I made the mistake of getting there early and I couldn't go where I lived. I had to go to Skid Row Place. And, you know, there, there, I don't think a car in that parking lot could have left. And uh, <laughs> I got there really early and, and you know, I, I drove a brand new Corvette. I didn't even have the license plates for it yet. I wore my Hells Angel colors so he knew who I was. And, and these old parts are, I mean, these guys were really, really old in this Skid Row Club. I mean, they were, they were all over like 40 years and older, you know. And uh, I passed that up a long time ago. But, uh, you know, and they would tell me stupid, I, I mean, we went over the doctor's opinion. They'd go, do you agree with that? And I go, yeah, absolutely, 100%. They say, well, all you got to do is stay here. And I go, you know what, if I was as old as you and my car wouldn't leave the parking lot, I'd stay here too. <laughs> I go, but I got things happening, you know. And, and I mean, I didn't tell them, you know, I desperately want to die. I just told them I got things happening. Man, I can't stay here. And, and I ended up staying sober. I took a year trip. I made it 10 and a half months. I figured that was close enough. But back then, they only test us for drinking, they didn't test us for that other stuff we're not supposed to talk about up here. And so you take that and not drink, and, and you could pass, you know, when you got sucked in and, and they gave you the test, you could pass it. <coughs> you know, I just kept doing that, you know, now of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I would come up with ideas, you know, like one time, it's like, you know, I, I told them I demand the right that, that I go to A meeting every day, but after the, every night, but after the A meeting, I have the right to go to the bar and shoot pool with my Hells Angel buddies and, and drink sodas. And they told me they didn't think that was a good idea, and I told them, you know, if I was as old as you guys, I'd go home and just go to bed myself, but I, you know, I, got, you know, and I, you know, I always had to be in the, you know, God, what if your next mother or your next children would have been there and you were standing around and A me half hour later, mystery, you know, God, that would be disgusting. So I, I'd go to the A meeting every night and I'd go to the bar and shoot pool and I did that for 11 months. I didn't take none of that other stuff that time either. I was actually really sober. And, and those blondes always get me in trouble. I was, uh, I think, I, I forget who I was telling. Joe, I think, I, I mean, it sounds like I've never, you know, half my wives were brunettes, but the blondes really get me in trouble. They talk me into crap I don't really want to do. And this blonde wanted to play a game of pool for a drink. And I, you know, this is going to be the mother of my next children. She's going to be my fifth wife. And she don't know none of it yet, but this is how it's going to come down. And so I I played her for a drink. And, of course, I won. And, and you know, this is going to be the next mother of my children. So I got to drink the drink and be sociable. And and I drank that drink. And, and I didn't know that phenomenal craving took over. and. Uh, I don't even know what happened to that blonde girl. i never seen her ever again. You know, when I take a drink, I mean, I knew it was on. And I knew, you know, I might come home tonight or it might be a month from now. I don't know, and I knew that. But you see, it didn't matter, man, you know, because I, I just need to tear it up. I need to make as many people pay till I die. You know, I wasn't able to die, and I, I'm going in and out of these institutions, I, I'm getting shot and can't die. I, you know, I heard if you slit your wrist both ways, that works, I did that, I mean, my arms really scarred up from it. And, you know, God always, you know, I never believed in God ever until I got sober this time, but God always, I know today God always put someone in the right place where I always lived. And, uh, you know, I married to my seventh wife and been going to Haiti for 10 years and... uh And uh, we had another child and you know, I had the Rants and the New Lincolns and the Harley Davidsons and all that and and you know what? I I, you know, I wanted to die desperately And I'm really pissed that I can't die and and, You know you just marry another girl and another kid and then you know the cows and the pigs and the horses and all you know Just to try to look like everything's okay And when I run her off one more time she won't come back and uh, when I want her to come back and I think, I'm not going to let another wife do this. You know, I, I'd been up on about a week-long run. and I grabbed a shotgun. I went over to her apartment. I stopped at Seven Eleven 11 I bought two bottles of champagne celebrating. I'm going to blow her head off. I take that baby, and I'm going to run. I'm not going to let another woman do this to me, you see, because I can't see my other kids. Because the judges said, scumbags like me shouldn't be allowed to be around children because all my violent crimes and the guns. and. Today, I know those judges were right, but it really pissed me off. You know, I mean, you know, any child doesn't need to be with cops raiding right the house and shooting the front door off the hinges, and, but I thought they were picking on me, and uh, so I'm gonna grab this baby after I blow her head off and I'm gonna run, and I get over there and she's not home, and her neighbors were there and they knew I'd been in and out of institutions, and it just don't matter, I kick the door in, I'm in there drinking this stuff and taking stuff, and, you uh, waiting for her to come home, and the SWAT team shows up, of course, one more time. It's like, um, I don't know what changes. time. It's like I can not go out and shoot another cop. Uh, I'm a tough guy, so I can't go out and say, hey, I give up. I can't do that either. I mean, how would that look on the news? The news cameras were out there and stuff. I mean, I, I couldn't do that. And, and uh, you know, I just came to meet, uh, My oldest kid had had got a hold of me a couple days before that and goes, "Uh, can't you just disappear or die or something? He goes, I'm so embarrassed of you. Uh, My friend's seeing you on TV for all the crimes you're always wanted for and uh, he goes, can't you just disappear? And I get to thinking, man, you know what? My children would be better off without me in this world And, and I can't go out there and give up and I can't shoot a cop so I pulled that shotgun to my head and I pulled the trigger. When I came out of that coma months and months and months later, uh, I was strapped to a bed. I didn't have no face. I mean, all this is all new. I didn't have no cheekbones, no nothing. You could stick your fist inside my head. Uh, I was strapped with leather restraints every part of my body that would move. Uh, I was all the way blind, and I'm still most way blind. This is just a big blur out here. You guys have really uh, good-looking women here in the- <laughs> <laughs> Indianapolis. Uh, No, the women I've met here are absolutely beautiful. Um, Sister Ruth, she's such a trip, man. I loved her. I thought she did a magnificent job. Um, I, uh, you know, I was on life support systems and, um, you know, the doctors came in on a daily basis and told me, boy, there's nothing we can do for you. You're going to die. That's where I got do to Alcoholics Anonymous again. You know, uh, you know, in Northern California, we call it the Hospital and Institution Committee, which is really, really huge. It's the uh, hugest uh, committee. You know, it actually got started before general service. The first uh, institution meeting was in San Quentin Prison uh, by Warden Duffy, and, and as a matter of fact, they gave the uh, big book in Toronto to the warden of uh, San Quentin Prison for all the years of uh, having Alcoholics Anonymous in in that prison and and, uh, you know, I'm strapped to this bed, I can't see, I can't wiggle my head, I can't, you know, I have this plate that pops in my head, if I take it out now, I still can't talk. I didn't have one then and these people from Alcoholics Anonymous would come up on my door and they'd, they'd come in and say, hey, can we read you the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? Like, I got a choice in this matter, you know? And they sit down and start reading me this friggin' book, you know, and, and they, they take shifts all day long till late in the night read me this book. And so desperately I want to tell them, you know what, I'm an alcoholic and, and you know, I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety just like the book says. You know, I have this allergy of the body, the obsession of mind, the phenomenal craving takes over when I put alcohol in my system. and And, you know, I'm just insane. I'm insane. I'm more insane not drinking than I am when I'm drinking. It just... You know, it doesn't work anymore, but I got to, I can't go with not taking a drink, and I want to tell them this so desperately, but I can't say nothing, and they keep bringing that friggin' book to me, and and you know, when they leave, you know, like 10 o'clock at night, you know, they brought a tape deck in there, and all these stack of tapes, and they put a tape on for me, they say, you want to listen to A tape, like I can wiggle my head, and say no, you know, so they put the tape on, these friggin' A speakers, and and uh, the first one they put on, I don't know if you ever heard that Bob Earl, the Vulture on the Headboard. If you've never heard that, you need to get he talks about how we think, you know, and we're sober a little while and and if you're wondering why you're nuts and and, and you're like three months sober and A, it's like we our minds is vulture on the headboard. And I related so much cause you know, I'd wake up and that that my mind just nah, nah, nah and then you know, it just won't shut up, you know, and and this vulture says, oh, you're pretty tired, you better not go to work. As tired as you are, you'd get fired if you did go to work. So you do a quick account of how much money you got in the bank, and, and you got enough to last four weeks, so now you are uh, lost your job and you're bankrupt, and you've been awake a total of 13 seconds, you know. And, and you know, I related that kind of stuff, I mean, that's not the whole story, but." You know, and, and those nurses thought I really enjoyed these tapes, right? So when they would end, and they come in and take my temperature and your pulse and all that, they would put another tape in all night long. I had to listen to this A shit all night long. <laughs> <laughs> and then they come in the morning, knock on my door again, ask if they could read me the book, you know, how's it going? It's like, oh man, this is real fun. I can't sleep. I got to listen to that A shit all night. You guys are here bugging me all day. And, uh, you know, I did that for a lot, a lot of months strapped to that bed. And I'd like to tell you, you know, I, I, I they would loosen my hand a little bit and when my family would be there I'd write that, you know what, this scare me bad enough I'll never take another drink or a drug as long as I live. And I meant with every fiber of my body, man, I was done. And, uh, you know, all those months later when I got out, me and that seventh wife went back together and that first night she wanted to do a little bit of that non-habit-forming cocaine. And uh and have a drink and and I said if it was just a little bit I would do that with her and, and the first night out of the hospital I'm drinking and using. I'm off and running again. You know, and that phenomenal craving takes over and I can't stop. You know, I'm going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and for the next two years I went to the, I did the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for the next two years. I, I went to a lot of meetings and, and they'd say, Matt, wanna go to the coffee And It's like I mean, I hurt so bad, I can't, i got to go lay down. They say, well, okay, we'll pick you up for the next meeting. It's like, damn. I mean, I moved clear out by the lake, so they wouldn't come pick me up anymore. And, and all they did was show up earlier then, you know, it's, uh... <clears throat> you know. You know, if you're new here, you know how they bug you. They come up and ask, you you know, how you doing? And you say, oh, wonderful, like you're lying like shit, too, you know. But, but you know, they say, stuff's really great, and inside you really want to die. You can't say how you're feeling around here. They say you got a sponsor, and you're no, and they, oh, man, you ain't going to make it, you know. Oh, God. You know, and they make you feel worse than you already do. So you go ask somebody finally to be your sponsor, you know. He says, yeah, here, give me a call. Go home and read this. Now they come up to you and say, you know, you quit going to those meetings so you don't see that guy no more, though. And you don't call them, but they come up and say, Matt, you got a sponsor? And you say, yeah, and they go, who is it? And you tell them, oh, it's Barry. They pat you on the back, and they go, God, Matt, you're gonna make it now. Inside, you really wanna die desperately. You know, if they would've took that a little further and said, do you ever call them, I'd been screwed. So if you do that, maybe you might ask them, do you ever call them? Um, you know, I did that for two years. And I drank four times, you know. I would never drink before a meeting, only afterwards. You have to look like everything's okay no matter what. You might want to die more than you ever have. You're sober and not drinking an Alcoholics Anonymous, going to three to five meetings doing the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. But you got to look like everything's okay. <clears throat> I don't want people to know I'm blind. Like that worked really good. Back then I had a gauze pad went all the way across my face. Tube sticking out of it. If you sit across a meeting from me, you had, there was these clear tubes, I had suction balls and it sucked fluids out of my head 24 hours a day. And, and if you sat across from me at the table, you had to watch that fluid being sucked out. And if you'd share about being afraid or something, I think someone told him about me, and pissed me off. I'd take my coffee and throw it on you. Or it, felt like, it sounded like you were down the table two or three seats. I'd turn the whole table over on you. And they'd say, man, you gotta do something about that anger issue. And it's like, it's no problem for me. I did that crap for two years, man. I drank that four times. The last time was on January 25th, 1987. You know, I'm saving up all my pills for my surgeries because you know there's a day to say crap isn't going to work. I know that. Um, I've been in Alva Alcoxin for a lot of years. And so that night, you know, I I got two half gallons of uh, really good vodka. It was uh, like, I think at that time, $4.15 for a half gallon of that Ernie's brand vodka, you know, the plastic fist or half gallons. And, uh, and I took 455 synthetic morphine tablets. I knew that would work. And when I came to out of that coma, I was really, really pissed. It's like, you know what? I, you know, I'm not just crying for help, live, I desperately want to die. It's like, what I got to do to die? And, you know, all the crap I heard in the for 12 years now I've been running through my head, you know. It was ruined. like a, you know, like that Star Wars movie, you know, it just ran fast, you know. And, and finally, you know, I was so weak I couldn't stand up. And, um, you know, I, uh, I'd puke pills up all over. And, and it would just, you know, and all my smelling senses are blown away. It must have smelled really bad. You know, my roommates just, you know, that, that was a normal thing if someone goes out and don't come out of the room for Three or four or five days, no big deal. <clears throat> uh, you know, it came to to me that, you know, why don't you pray to God? And I thought, you know what, you don't believe in God. So how am I gonna do that? It just like, it, it came to my head, you know, do the best you can. And, and I rolled out and I got on my knees, and it was a cussing prayer. I never prayed before in my life. I never believed in anything of a God, you know. I. I lived my whole life telling you how weak you were if you believed in some form of God or religion or whatever and and I would hold a gun to your head, and make you pray to me that there wasn't no God, that I was a God. And and you know that, that cussing prayer that I did that morning on my knees, I believed that God understood it was the best I could do at the time. I believed that with the bottom of my, my heart. And I don't you know, I don't pray that way today, but at the time it was the best I could do, and I was basically you know, I can't do it anymore. Whatever you, an alcoholic anonymous wants me to do, I'll do it. And I went to that meeting that day. I told the old timers what happened. I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, they call me boy all the time. And I, you know, when you're a hell's angel, that boy shit it sucks. <laughs> <coughs> and they tell me, boy, go out and pick up the cigarette butts. And I said, I ain't doing it. They said, we thought you made a deal with God. And to us, that you would do whatever we told you to do. And I said, Well, this is going to be a circus act, man. You got the blind guy out picking up cigarette butts. You're all going to run to the window and watch and shit. And he said, Well, you said you would do whatever. And it's like, Okay. So, for a little over 22 years, God hasn't sent me a message or a fax or nothing or a meditation to quit picking up cigarette butts. So, I still pick up cigarette butts after 22 years because it worked. You know, a lot of people, I hear that a lot of times. That, you know, it's so awesome to see Harry here with 51 years and he's still here. You know, I thanked him uh, for being here. You know, a, a lot of people get their lives together and don't need to go to A.A. or anymore, or that, or they'll show up once a year to get their chip, or, you know, they want to leave that service work for the newcomer to do, and it's like, you know what, I want to stay sober as much as a newcomer. You know, the guy here with one day, you know what, if you or me got to get drunk, I hope it's you, buddy. Um. Uh, I hope you don't, but you know, you're going to have to do what we do, and you got to continue to do it on a regular basis, like it or not. I mean, there's a million times I don't want to go to the friggin' jail. At five days sober, they told me, Boy, we need to go to jail. The means aren't being covered. I said, I ain't doing it. He said, Boy, you said you would do anything. And it's like, a lot of times I would do it, so they quit calling me that boy shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but so I went to the jail, and, and uh, so I was a little over 22 years, and I still go to jail. Um, they said they made me go every week because it wasn't being covered. I said I'd go for a year, and that's it, no more. It's been over 22 years, and I still... You know, every time I walk through that last locked-up door, coming back out thats my choice, I mean, I get, like, these God bumps all over me. It's just absolutely awesome. You know, and God hasn't sent me a fax and said, Hey, you know what, uh, you know, it seems like when... We're getting a few extra too many guys for the gel, helping a new gel and add a bunch more floors. And we need like on Thursday nights, we need like about, I don't know, 75, 80 guys to cover the gels we have. And uh, That's not counting all the pantentries. In Fresno has a lot of farmland, and we got a lot of mountains, Yosemite's right right there, and the giant redwoods are right there, but the whole valley's farming, and. And California, started building these prisons out in all this farmland out in the middle of nowhere. So if they escape, they got to go. You know, there's no highways or freeways around them. They're just little country roads going out there. And and so we started the means of alcoholics anonymous. I got to participate in that for a lot of years, starting the means in the in the prisons. And after 12 years of that, the state changed their policy, and now I'm too high of a risk to go in and. Uh, At first, it pissed me off, you know, because I enjoyed doing that. And my sponsor would tell me, when God takes away something you're doing in Alcoholics Anonymous, He's got a plan for you to do something else. And that's always been true for me. Um, You know, I've always kept Alcoholics Anonymous my primary purpose, no matter what. Uh, You know, through the men's steps, amazing things can happen. You know, I. you know, if you're new and, and, and uh, you know, they're going to tell you here, keep coming back, it'll get better. I'll, I'll tell you what my first year was like. I, I, uh, I got indicted for income tax evasion for over half a million dollars. Uh, that seventh wife I went back with, she changed the locks on the door when I was going to a new meeting and moved her boyfriend in at the same time. It was my place. But, uh, I had emergency back surgery that first year. Um, I got indicted for uh, murder that first year. I remember after I got indicted for murder and having to go before the grand jury, I went back and told my Amy, I go, if this shit gets any better, I don't know if I can take it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the thing is, one day at a time, you know, my sponsor was so much on me about that one day at a time. and. Uh, you know, in the meditation, and, and, you know, I made the mistake of getting a sponsor that didn't work. Uh, when I got him as my sponsor, he was off. And my place was in between our home group and his house, so he would just come by my house every morning. And, and you know when you're new, you, you know how when you wake up, you've got a lot of things to figure out and think about? And uh, uh, he would come by and want to go out and pray on my front porch. And he'd want to listen to the sounds of God. And i tell him, man, I got a lot of shit to do. And he goes, like, what? You know, uh, it's like, well, I gotta figure this crap out, you know, and, and we'd get out there and we talk about being in the moment. And, and he'd make me, you know, being all the way blind, he'd tell me, what kind of car is that driving down the street? And it's like, damn, I'm blind. How the heck would I know? And, and you know what, we got to where we could I could tell him what kind of car was driving down the street. You know, I had this little boy in diapers, and it's like, well, why do why do I get stuck taking care of this kid? And I, you know, I can't run around like everybody else. And I got all these service commitments. I've never gone a day of somebody without a service commitment. And you know, I ended up getting a hundred percent custody of that little boy, this hell's angel convict piece of crap. I got a hundred percent custody, and my sponsor kept telling me it's because you. You learned here in Alcoholics Anonymous to keep this your primary purpose and to do the right thing and good things happen. And, and you know, life's going to go on. I mean, my parents died. I made amends with my parents and we had an awesome relationship. You know, I didn't make amends to them for all the crap they did to me and the beatings I took. You know, I made amends for the part I took as a son in, in their lives. And, and we ended up having, you know, my mom ended up getting sober, taking me to meetings. And uh, she died sober. Uh, she had worked the steps, She was really miserable. She got involved in service. And, and that's not the kind of sobriety. That's what, I don't want to stay sober to live like my mother did. She was absolutely miserable. You know, I got, uh, I got married in sobriety. I knew it was wrong. I did it anyways. Uh, ten years sober. She was a really good friend of mine, she was in al we were on a lot of conference committees together and, and I even told my sponsor outside the wedding chapel, this isn't right. And he goes, well you don't have to go through with it, and I told him, man you don't understand, I'm just a big shot circuit speaker, I can make it work. And that ended up being the worst friggin' divorce out of all eight of them, I made it work really good. At that time, I'm done with women. Uh, You know, that divorce took five years, but after we filed for a divorce, you know, it's like I love my life. I love running all over the country like I do. You know, my kids are growing. You know, I got grandkids. I I sponsor a ton of guys all over the country. I I mean, you know what? I don't have time for a relationship. I'm done. I'm through. I'm just going to finish out however long God wants me to live in the rest of this world doing what I do. It's absolutely perfect. Yeah, I was speaking up north, and and I was being a smart-ass once in a while, saying I was accepting resumes from my ninth ex-wife when I was speaking. And, you know, this little tiny, 98-pound blonde, of course, long blonde girl, this little tiny, uh, five-foot-tall girl came up, and she goes, Matt, I, I have a resume for you. And uh, we ended up going to dinner that night, you know, not together, but... I went with some guys and she went with some of her girls, and one of her responses was celebrating a year of sobriety. And and we ended up at the same restaurant, and she became the absolute love of my life. I didn't know love could be that way. You know, I, I mean, it sounds funny being married eight times, but I always just accepted that's what love is it's just going to suck. You fight, you argue, you don't, you know, you stay gone. A kid pops out every now and then, you pay a lot of money, and, you know, that's, we call that crap love, you know. And uh, I met this girl. And I absolutely felt madly in love. You know, I started to know what the, the words and the songs. Man, I thought those songs that was BS. I thought that wasn't. I thought that was imaginary. It couldn't be that way. And and you know, so the people that watch those love movies, you know, they're stupid because that's not how real life is. And, and you know what? I know that is true today. Uh, and we had the most awesome relationship. It was a long-distance relationship. She was three hours away from where I lived. And uh, she was absolutely involved in a ton of service like me and stayed real active in alcoholics and And we were running all over the country together and doing things. And, and you know, it was the most amazing thing in my life. And uh, we would go to places like like we went. One time I wasn't speaking Thanksgiving weekend we went to the Las Vegas roundup and and we went to check in and the girl goes you guys are newlyweds aren't you and we go no and she goes you guys look so much in love she gave us a conference rate for the hotel and she gave us a honeymoon penthouse suite for the same price per week it was just absolutely uh, beyond my wildest dreams And I thought this is this is where God wants me to be, and we even talked about when I died, how hard this was going to be on her. And uh, <clears throat> you know, nine months ago she died. She went for a doctor's visit, and five days later she was dead. And uh, it really bothered me. I had commitments out of state, and, and I wanted to, I wanted to run on those commitments, and I wanted to run to the hospital and. And I talked to some old timers and they told me, you know what, that God had me right where I was supposed to be that would work out. And, and the day of her funeral, I was out of the town speaking at another conference. And you know, I don't know our family put it together that quick. And, and it kind of ticked me off at first. And then I got to think it's about her kids. It's not about me. You know, and I, I was just, you know, I was talking to an old timer up in that town I was in. I go, you know, I'm just really amazed, uh, a scumbag like me, and what you've taught me that I can stop and not think about me, and I can think about those children and that's about those children, not about me. Um, I didn't like it, but that's just the way it was, you know, and uh, you know, what I did was uh, um, the last nine months I've just gotten busier in Alcoholics Anonymous. It just seems like, you know, I so it's like that relationship is over, that divorce finally got over, you know, and uh, it just, Financially, I'm screwed more than I've ever been in my life. I just filed for bankruptcy and, uh, you know, probably about ready to lose my house in foreclosure because of the economy. And I guess I, Brian thinks it's funnier and shit. I tell him I've done so many stupid things even in sobriety. You know, like like uh, my sponsor says my silver log is, is crazy as my drunken log. And, and like uh, a year and a half ago, you know, I'm out cutting wood with a chainsaw. Uh, Like a blind guy needs to be cutting with a chainsaw, right? I don't know if you can see, but see where this finger's way shorter? I whacked that baby off of the chainsaw right at the knuckle a year and a half ago. And, you know, at least I was wearing gloves so the finger was still there. You know, and uh, (laughs) and I was just cutting wood uh, Wednesday before I flew up here too. Everybody goes, man, you better not cut nothing off. You don't have time to go have a stitch back on, you know. And, <laughs> I mean, every part of my body has been re sewn back on, and muscles moved and grafted and bones grafted and wires and pins. And, uh, and there's only one part of me left in an original shape, and I think about that on a daily basis. If I don't continue to work these steps and be active in alcoholics anonymous, I might lose that sucker too, you know. and. Uh, I like that thing being the original part, you know, even though nothing else is, and, and that's not true. I, you know, I stay active in alcoholics Anonymous. I, I mean, it's true, I'm full of scar tissue and everything's been moved around, but, but I stay active in alcoholics Anonymous because, you know, I, I love alcoholics. Every day I wake up, I love A more and more every day. I love A more now after 22 years than I ever have in my whole life. I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, my, my child that I got custody of almost died from a surgery uh, in sobriety. You know, but good things happen. You find kids you don't know about, and and you have a relationship with them, and, and they get married, and they ask you to walk them down the aisle, and God, you're just beaming, you know, you're, you're just big shot, and hey, You go to the pantentary and you tell these guys, yeah, my daughter's going to have me walk down the aisle. I found her in sobriety. You know, it's just awesome. And the next day your daughter calls and says, you know, it's customary for the father to pay for the wedding. And it's like, shit. (laughs) 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 And you start crying and your daughter says, dad, you don't have to do it. And you tell her, honey, man, you know what? It's a blessing I don't deserve, but I'd love to do it. And The youngest child graduates from high school and he goes, Dad, all my, my buddies are going to Hawaii for graduation. Could I go to Hawaii for graduation? And I was like, damn. I locked up at my graduation time. I did to go to no dang Hawaii. And I ended up doing a job. I told him, you know, that, that times were hard right then. And uh, I'd see what I could do. And you know what, I ended up doing a job by the time that trip had to be paid for, and I had just the penny enough to pay for his trip to Hawaii. You know, every time something was bad that I thought was the end, God's always pulled through. You know, and so what I've done since Lori died and and the commies sank, and I owe 110 grand more on my house than it's even worth now, and, you know, I show up to more meetings. I'm taking more people through the steps now than I've ever taken through the steps. I've always made at least five calls. In the last nine months, I make at least ten calls a day. You know, when the going gets tough in my life, I get going more in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's how I say so. That's how I have serenity in my life. That's how I love getting up every morning. You know, that's why I don't have to get up depressed over what's going on in my life. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love God. I love you guys so much. You guys right now are saving my life. You're doing more for me having me here than I'm doing for you. I'm absolutely sure of that. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and God bless you.